0: I'd I'd like to remind you of one of the important parts of the talk tonight is your presence and awareness. Being aware of your body while you're listening to the talk and while you're thinking about what I say or have any feelings about it. It's fine to think or feel, but don't leave yourself while that's happening. And I want to remind you, or ask you if you remember what's the last thing Vinny said in his talk last night. Does anybody remember? Is Vinny here? Are you here, (laughs) Vinny? Vinny doesn't. Vinny doesn't remember the the talks happening, I guess. But (laughs) anybody remember the last thing Vinny said? Pardon. I love you, keep going. It's a beautiful way to end the talk, yeah. So I thought I would talk about love tonight because it's such an important part of our experience as human beings. It's a key piece for everybody. Everybody needs enough love. When we're babies, doesn't have to be perfect love. It doesn't have to be the best love, but enough love at some point from someone might be the mothering person or the or uh, somebody else in the family who fills that function to give this little child enough love and. Uh, Sometimes it's somebody from outside of the family who does that, depending on your situation. But it's really an important part of being being human and being alive as a human being is love. And um, science uh, is really interested in many things, you know, and various studying so much of the Dharma. There there's Vinny, Mr. Love walking in the door. Hey bro. <laughs> 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 and uh Just to bring you two up to date, I quoted you. Somebody, I asked someone, and they remembered your last words last night about love. So I'm starting with with you. So um, here's from a scientist who said, when scientists looked for a unified theory of the universe, when scientists looked for a unified theory of the universe, they forgot the most important, the most powerful unseen force, love. Love is light that enlightens those who give and receive it. Love is gravity because it makes some people feel attracted to others. Love is power because it multiplies the best we have it allows humanity not to be extinguished in their blind selfishness. Love unfolds and reveals for love we live and for love we die and that spiritual teacher was Albert Einstein, who said that who knows the little knew a little bit about science and and uh, very powerful that that would come from him, because he revolutionized our understanding our understanding of space, time, gravity, the universe, and he said, the most powerful unseen force is love. So so we're getting we're getting um, good prompts for love from Albert. And what I'd like to talk about more specifically tonight is the love of the Dharma, the love of the heartfelt kind of uh, relationship we can develop with the Dharma, which we talk about as truth. Dharma means truth, or the way things are, or the Buddhist teachings that point to the nature of reality. And as i reflect on this uh love i um i'm often asked how did i get to the dharma and so i'll tell you how i got to the dharma even though you may not be asking but it it fits with the talk <laughs> um because it's through the heart that i came to buddhism and um i'm going to I'll try to make this not too long a story, but basically I'm Jewish by birth. I had met a Yemenite Israeli woman in San Francisco, and we liked each other and hung out for a while. Then she went back to Israel, and I thought, well, I've, I've never been to Israel. I don't know what that's about. I'll go there. I'll check it out. You know, really, I wanted to see her again, so... I had a good excuse, I was Jewish, it's, you know, it's okay. So so, so I went to Israel and, um, you know, spent some time in her, uh, a very different Judaism than I knew, in a, in a little uh, Yemenite village in Israel. And then I also did the Jewish High Holy Days in Israel, um, and... It's uh, it's the new year, and it's the atonement. There's the uh, um, Rosh Hashanah is the new year, and then uh, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, and you atone for the, your sins. And so I'm doing the ritual in the synagogue there, and the book is both in Hebrew and English, so I'm able to understand all the... I can read Hebrew, but I didn't understand it. And so I'm reading, and one of the first atonements that you do is you atone for a hardening of the heart. You atone for a hardening of the heart. And it really, like, popped out at me. It's like, oh, that had happened to me. And I I was relatively young at that point, 28 maybe maybe 6 yeah no 28 28 and my heart had hardened i'd been through i i'd been married and the marriage had ended and i was broken hearted and i got hard hearted and uh and uh and so it really hit me like oh i needed to atone for that And so, okay, I did the serum, you know, the the day and everything. And then at some point I went to the Wailing Wall, right? One of the great um, ancient um, parts of Judaism that's still there from, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, 5,000 years ago, something like that. And... um, and And you go to the whaling wall and you touch it, and this people have been doing this for thousands of years, and you touch it and you pray and i, I and I wasn't a big prayer at all, so but I put my hands on there and touched it, and then i and I thought, oh, I would ask, I would pray for, a, how do I be free from a hardening of the heart? I probably didn't say it in those words. That's a more Buddhist-sounding way to do it. How do I be free? But really just just praying about my having heart hardened and how do I unharden my heart? And, and I got an answer, which surprised the shit out of me, to be honest. <laughs> Because you know, I'm at the whaling wall. I don't know what I'm doing, really. And uh, and then uh, and you know, and of course, who would, who do you think answered? <laughs> Anybody know? <laughs> Not Buddha. <laughs> close, close. <laughs> it was close. That <laughs> was. Pardon? God. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who else would have answered, but <laughs> I mean, it could have been, you know, the old landlord from the wall or something. But, <laughs> you know, it was, I got an answer. And if you're in the Wailing Wall, you get an answer. You listen to it, even though I didn't like the answer. Now, this is true. I didn't. I didn't like the answer at all. I was like, oh, that's not the answer I want. And um, But if God talks to you at the Wailing Wall, you listen so, or at least I do, or I did, and what what and I was just to give you a little more context, I was a musician i was a i'd been a hippie and a hipster and a with the beatniks and all that kind of stuff, and so i I was like not into i wasn't into the new age thing at all and uh and but at the whaling wall, I got this you know, answer that said, meditate. And I'm like, what? You know, I don't, you know, and to, at least in my understanding back then, it's not even Jewish. You don't meditate if you're Jewish. You you pray and stuff like that, but it's, that's not the tradition of Judaism I grew up in, like meditate. and And I knew people who meditate, and I wasn't not so friendly with them. They were like, you know... I, I was snotty young man. So, um, but you know, if you get a message at the wailing wall, it says meditate. Okay. And that's how I started practicing as I came back from Israel and I, uh, asked around to find someone who knew someone, uh, uh, who could teach meditation. And then I went it was, it wasn't I wasn't at Buddhism yet, but i got i ended up meeting someone who was very powerful and it really opened me up and uh and i was started meditating five times a day like very quickly and it was like I would do four times a day at home and at least once outside in the park with my dog, so my dog could run around and uh yeah it was very but it really was in the beginning of a love, a love of the Dharma, of practice, of discovering what's here, what's here more than I know, what's here that has uh, the um, really the power and the grace and the goodness that Buddhism offers. Because I soon after this first person that I worked with I started going to Zen Center at 5.30 in the morning and sitting, uh, you know, almost every day, because it was free which I loved, you just walk in, you, and you don't have to relate to anybody, I loved that at the time too, so you go in you sit down, they ring a bell and you leave, and you you don't even have to say hello or goodbye and you just, but, but the Sangha, I appreciated the Sangha and the, the power of sitting with other people. And so it's a very heartfelt practice meditation. I don't know if you know that yet. Some of you may, some of you may not. But what we're doing here, I believe, has to do with love and loving the Dharma and loving what brings freedom or loving what brings truth. Or loving what brings, this is one of the metaphors for awakening in Buddhism, the sure heart's release. That's a metaphor for awakening, the sure heart's release. And I believe that we're all here because we seek or care about or love that or want that. And that's from the depths of our being. We want freedom. Hmm. And of course, the Dharma is uh, is considered has different ways that it's interpreted. It's a a universal truth and part of Buddhist metaphysics that describes the interrelated elements that make up all of phenomena, meaning the magic of each moment. There's causes and conditions, and then there's this, and there's causes and conditions. And then there's this. And each moment is a this, or is a now, or is a here. And we start to appreciate this moment, this experience, this aliveness, this gift that we have of being alive and conscious. Hmm. And part of what we love is the truth of what is real. Right As Rumi says, love is nothing other than finding the truth. Love is nothing other than finding the truth. You know, learning, discovering, awakening, realizing the truth. And that's what practice is about. That's what we're doing here. We're discovering the truth that's sitting right in our seat. We're discovering the depth that's sitting in each seat discovering the beauty of the human potential of who we are one of my favorite quotes from buddhism and i loved what you said last night Vinny, about you know uh 2600 years of phone tag that's that's so great (laughs) that was good (laughs) Because it's true. That's why it's good. (laughs) Because who knows what the Buddha actually said. We don't know. I, I don't know. But here's what's come down through many different phone calls. The gift of truth is the most precious gift. The taste of truth is the sweetest taste. The love of truth is the greatest love. Right? I heard this very early in Buddhism, and it resonated with me. It resonated with my heart. It was like, oh yeah, truth is good. It's a, it's a gift when people are truthful with us and when we're truthful with other people. and it, and And it tastes good. You can actually taste it at times. It's like, oh, it's real. It's not artificial flavoring. It's organic in that way, right? And the love of truth is something I didn't understand at first. I actually learned a lot about it from Hamid Ali. And, and he really, uh, he, that's something he values so much in his teaching. And it uh, just took me a while to really get it. Oh, that's where freedom is, is in the truth. And the truth opens reality to the unfolding of Dharma so that we're not rejecting our experience. We practice with, we work with what is true. It can't be any other way. And I, I believe I've said that already here. We can't pretend something is happening and be mindful of it. It's just not doesn't work. In the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the books uh, of the of Buddha's teachings, it said, it is in this way that we must train ourselves. You know, of course, you all know that, that a meditation retreat is a training. Right? That's how it's understood. It's a training of heart and mind to be aware and to open up and to discover what's true, to discover the Dharma. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And so you hear something that often isn't so out front about Buddhism, this incredible heartfulness and the importance of love in practice. It's not just an intellectual idea. It's not just an athletic practice of sitting through the next sip before they ring the goddamn bell. It's about loving something. It's about doing something you care about that has import to you, that touches you, that's meaningful. And of course, all these words I'm saying are are part of the heart love of the truth. And I believe many of you are familiar with the teachings in Buddhism of the Brahma-viharas, the Brahma Viharas, also called the Divine Abodes. Brahma means God. Uh, Vihara is house or realm. So it's it's uh, it's the God realms really, and it's about the heart, and it's how the the heart is understood in Buddhism. When the heart opens, it's part of it's godlike almost, and it's not that gods are way up there. It's, oh, it's the freedom of heart that opens when we relax and our heart is unhardened, right? When our heart opens, when our heart is touchable, when our heart is permeable. Hmm. And the four flavors that are pointed at are loving-kindness, metta, uh, karuna compassion uh, mudita joy appreciative joy and upekka, equanimity and i love i love i love the brahma viharas when the heart opens you're not doing the brahma viharas they're they're innate they're alive the heart's free to express its goodness and its beauty, and its love, and its intelligence, and its objectivity, which is not how we often think about the heart and love. But the loving kindness is such a beautiful way to relate to other people and to feel it and and see it. And and you never know when it's going to happen. And sometimes it opens up for maybe forever. Right? I mean, most people are are actually more familiar with compassion and how you hear about somebody's suffering and your heart just opens. You just, oh, I wish, I want to help. You know, what can I do to help? Can I do anything for you? Right? That's part of the compassion. And the mudita is also, I think, under-recognized. I had some mudita uh, yesterday. It just came. I even told the person. It was like, you know, it's a colleague who's here for a meeting, but and she came and I hadn't seen her in a while and we were happy to see each other. And she was telling me about um, she's, at, and she worked very hard working, diligent, wonderful teacher and person. And she's taking a year sabbatical from teaching. And the and I felt so much mudita for her. I was so happy for her. It's like, hallelujah, is what I had to say. That is so great, because I know how hard she works and that she has the good fortune to be able to let go for a while and just relax and practice and be herself. It just brought, uh, the joy was just spontaneous. It just was joy. It wasn't me You know, feeling like, oh, I should be joyful or anything like that. And, of course, upeka is just, that's, in some ways, it's almost the tastiest because nobody can figure out why the hell do they put equanimity in with the heart qualities, right? I mean, you know, people get it, loving kindness, compassion, joy, (laughs) equanimity. (laughs) Well, I've got this secret. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to tell you this evening. Because I think you might all recognize it. There's a way, in, in Zen, they talk about it this way. It's called grandmotherly heart. It's the, it's the heart that's seen everything and loves. And it's seen everything and it's okay with everything. It's a quantumist with everything because it's seen all the ups and downs of life and all the good and bad and all the right and wrong, and it still loves, but it loves knowing that there's only so much you can do for about anything sometimes. We're not in control. Grandmotherly heart. And that's a beautiful understanding of uh, for me of equanimity as part of the Brahma Viharas. Beautiful expression of the open heart that loves and cares, and also knows the truth of reality on many levels. Not just it's not always joy, and it's not always compassion, or it's not always loving kindness. It's just like it's it's a kind of love that is very quiet, very there but it's not doing much. It sees the way things are. And when I think about meditation practice, I feel like it takes love to do practice and to do it well and to give our hearts to it, to give our body, heart, and mind really to it or give our soul to it, give our consciousness to it. But it, it's, there's a certain kind of attention that's needed, and a presence that's needed, and a kind of hereness that's needed to be mindful moment by moment by moment that calls for the heart to be devoted to waking up, to discovering what's true in this moment, what's actually here, It's a devotional practice. It's not just a mental practice. It's not just a practice of will. And will is good, and and intellect is good, but you have to have the heart. And I believe your heart's already here. I don't think you can sit through, you know, a week of retreat without having your heart in it, because it's too difficult. It's like, you know can't we do anything else is the feeling sometimes i don't know if you've ever had that but i have and the word devotion comes from the latin it means consecrated consecrated right and then originally from the earlier it comes it means um i don't i can i don't speak latin it means formally to vow it's a vow from the heart. It's a dedication of the heart, opening to the, to the moment, to each moment, with love and devotion. And of course, one of the paradoxes about love and Buddhist practice is, is talked about in the two truths And the two truths that are described in Buddhism, more in Mahayana Buddhism than in the Theravada that I know of, but the two truths are uh, that there's relative truth and then there's ultimate truth. Relative truth and ultimate truth. And what I love about the teaching of the two truths is they're, they're all right here. Relative truth, right here. Ultimate truth, right here. And part of our practice is to wake up to both truths, to the truth of what's here in the moment, and also the truth of what's ultimate, or what's more um It's more non-dual truth, is one way we could say it. So it's waking up to dual truth and non-dual truth both. And so part of the conventional or relative is learning to love being in this moment. And again, it's not necessarily the emotional love that, oh, this is the best moment of my life. No, it's loving being present but loving being aware, loving being awake to what's actually here in the moment, because it frees us from having to do anything else. We can just relax right here, even if we're relaxing with something that's not relaxing, like anger or sadness or grief or fear, but we can still relax around that because we love. This practice of being with what's true in moment by moment by moment, and hmm. so loving really the discovery of reality in each moment, and that is helped by our not assuming we know what's gonna happen or or even sometimes we don't even know what is happening and we're still going to stay present and aware and awake right now. That's part of the power of love, the power of care. And I associate care as a heart quality, the, the quality of devotion, the quality of ardor, which we've talked about how important that is. So it includes both knowing what's here and, and not even knowing what's here, but giving ourselves to what's true. And of course, please reflect for a moment about what do you love about life when we're talking about relative truth? What do you love about life? And it could be anything. Just notice what you might love about life. And of course, there's there's usually a top ten that people say, like chocolate always comes up. It's a big one for a lot of people. You know, or or people like me, it's like the warriors or something. But, but, but you know, there's so many different things because people love gardening, or people love um, writing, or people love reading, or people love studying, or people love cooking, or people love eating, or people love um, uh, swimming, or dancing, or singing or anything anybody recognize any of this that you love a lot of different things so that love is real that's that's real and that's an important love to start to recognize in order to see both the relative and the and the ultimate right the absolute discovering the loving of reality in every moment and then seeing how a more ultimate love may be, not maybe, that the depth of love is even in the relative. It's really beautiful in Zen when they teach about, at least in the Suzuki Roshi lineage, when they teach about the two truths, they say um, that there's relative truth and ultimate truth, and they're equally true, right? Relative truth, true. Re- uh, ultimate truth, true. Equally true. They're equally true. And so you start to see that, that there's an interbeing, what Thich Nhat Hanh would call, there's an interbeingness to the to the two truths, that relative love and ultimate love are not actually separate. That relative love comes out of ultimate love, and ultimate love is manifests itself as relative love. And I've had uh, surprising experiences of love as part of my practice, and I'll I'll tell you a little just because. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a good guy and all that stuff, but I wasn't a big lovey-dovey guy, and uh, and um, and I had a very serious accident, which I don't know if I mentioned here. I've mentioned it in the groups, and um, and um, and I, as part of my recovery, I was walking in the park a lot in Golden Gate Park, because I couldn't do much else, especially the first year afterwards. I I started doing a little bit, but I would walk in the park, and this funny thing started to happen after a while. Where, and I, I wasn't a big nature guy. I mean, I'm a city kid. I mean, I grew up in Detroit, and for an upgrade, I moved to New York. You know, and 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 I loved both Detroit and New York, both great cities, and and uh, <laughs> and I came out west i actually, I was doing radical political street theater in New York, which I loved was great to do and then the street theater decided to become a political collective and moved to the country, which was like we we moved to Oregon, and we're living in the countryside of Oregon, and we didn't realize, oh, there are no streets here, you know you know so, so <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so and you know and i and we were you know and i built a cabin there that was really nice on the commune uh but but you know i was so happy two year after two years there i we i moved down to san francisco and i was so happy to be in a city and san francisco was barely a city compared to detroit and new york no offense for san franciscan's but it's a beach town, and you know, and, and and I like it. I live there still, but it's it's not like a city, to me. And so, and um, and um, so, I'm walking in the park. I'm recovering from this accident, and I start to love the trees. And I'm not a tree guy. I mean, you know, I mean, trees are good. you know but that kind of attitude but i started to just love like the trees were beautiful and the trees were magical and the trees had their own presence to them they were alive and they were happening and they were they had an incredible amount of equanimity the wind would blow and they would go with it. The wind would stop and they would stop. You know, it would rain and they were good. And it didn't rain, they survived mostly. And, you know, it was, and 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 then, you know, it wasn't just the trees, the flowers, the birds, the this, the Every all of a sudden, like this love started happening. And I didn't, you know, I would look around, what, I kept saying, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> You know, and then I finally at some point I realized, oh, this is love here. There's this is love here. And it wasn't to be honest, it wasn't just the trees. At some point, because a lot of people go to Golden Gate Park, a lot of people in the days before COVID who were tourists, remember tourists. So people were coming <laughs> and, and and be people from all over the world. And and I would feel this love for them or this different flavors of love for them uh definitely the kind of kindness or easy happy always to help if they needed to find their way how to get to, from here to there in San Francisco or 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 also joy in their delight and their their of their experience whether they're looking around and if if they're in whatever they're in you know the japanese tea garden in san in the park or you know, are on hippie Hill, and they're, you know, thinking about the hippies from, you know, 50 years ago, whatever. And, um, and, um, and also, um, and just there was a kind of appreciative love of people, of human beings, all of us uh, just wanting to be happy and enjoy life and be here. And uh, so so I'm just saying that because it surprised me, that kind of love, because it wasn't really particular. I mean, it was for all those things, but it was bigger than all those things that I felt the love towards. And it really got stimulated by nature. Later, I was, uh, I was drinking some tea, and you know how they some of the tea, Tea bags have little tags, and they put quotes on them now—spiritual quotes. <laughs> and one of them said, "If you truly love nature, you will find beauty everywhere." And I and, I, and that's true. And that was by a Vincent Van Gogh, right? Who knew a lot about beauty. Hmm. And so there's conventional love. Relative love rooted in the deep love of just being, of being here, of being alive. And it opens up all the different flavors of love, which include, you know, generosity. Or I always think of, you know, there's four Brahma Vaharas of of loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, and equanimity. I always think the fifth is gratitude. You know, in Eugene's Buddhism, gratitude is the fifth Vihara, And also, um, the goodness of the giving heart. And Bill Hooks said it this way. She said, a generous heart is always open, always ready to receive our going and coming. In the midst of such love, we need never fear abandonment. A generous heart is always open, always ready to receive our coming and going. In the midst of such love, we need never fear abandonment. This is the most precious gift true love offers, the experience of knowing we always belong. And what she's pointing at is the open heart that cares about us, cares about what's alive right here, appreciates it, is kind to it, and generous in the comings and goings of however neurotic we may be, right? Because probably we're not done with the neurosis yet. You know, and loving our bodies, whatever they are, however they're here for a short time, really, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, and then they're gone. It's just you know, and of course as you get older and I'm older enough, it all feels like, oh yeah, it just all happened in a moment. Right? I mean, I'm seventy I see, I even have to think about how old am I now. Seventy-three. I'm seventy-three now, and it's like uh it's just wild. Like where did that all go? But wherever it went, it's gone. Whew. Wild. And it was, you know, and it was everything. It was up, down, all around life, you know, but good enough, good enough. And I'm happy to be here because I, in this form, in this body, will not be here forever. And so when you get that, and it's more, I, I get the grandmotherly perspective as I get older, more. And Mary Oliver said it this way. She said, you do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Really. Whatever that might be. Sleep. You know. Or walk or chocolate, or holding somebody's hand, or making love with somebody, whatever it is, you know. And love also has a power to it. It can be fierce love, and it's not a bad thing. It's the Vajra love that wants the truth, that, one, that loves the truth and is willing to do anything to realize what's true and to wake up to what's true and to see what's the skillful means that is needed to respond to life in this world. And it helps us become who and what we are, who and what we are meaning the essence of who we are or the depth of what we are the fierceness at times. James Baldwin said it this way. He said, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and we know we cannot live within. I use the word love here not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being. And this is James Baldwin at least 50 years ago writing this. Um, I use the word love here not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace, right? Not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. And you're all here. You all have some of that here because it takes courage to come and do this and to really see what's here. What am I? Who am I? And so love means we start to love waking up to reality, whatever it is, however it is. Nisargadat, who I quoted the other night, I believe, he said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. Actually, sorry, I had it backwards. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Okay, let's get it right. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. And I'm reading that because my friend Sharon Salzberg, who's one of the senior teachers in this tradition, she talks about it. She said, um, I am nothing does not mean that there is a bleak wasteland within. It does mean that with awareness we open to a clear, unimpeded space without center or periphery, nothing separate. I'm going to read this again. Right. So uh, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. I am nothing does not mean that there is a bleak wasteland within. It does mean that with awareness, we open to a clear, unimpeded space without center or periphery, nothing separate. If we are nothing, there is nothing at all to serve as a barrier to our boundless expression of love. And so she's talking about an expansive love that has no boundary. That is possible when one is nothing. She said, being nothing in this way, we are also inevitably everything. Everything does not mean self-aggrandizement, but a decisive recognition of interconnection. We are not separate. Everything does not mean self-aggrandizement, but a decisive recognition of interconnection. We are not separate. Both the clear open space of nothing and the interconnectedness of everything awakens us to our true nature. This is the truth we contact when we meditate, a sense of unity beyond all suffering. It is always present. I would just change that. That may be true, but I would say it's always available. We're still discovering it. And it's really about the love tells me I am everything. The love starts to break down the boundaries and open to the mystery of being, the mystery of what's here, the mystery of Buddha nature, the goodness of Buddha nature. So I'm going to end with two quotes. One is from Kalu Rinpoche. It's a quote I heard very early in my practice that I love that's related to the nothing, everything. He said, we live in illusion, meaning we live in misunderstanding. But he said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. There is a reality. You, you, each of you, each of us, you are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. It's a beautiful teaching from Kalu. Maybe that's a good place to end. I was going to just say something more about love from Martin Luther King. I guess I should say it if I put it in the room. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said, he said, love is the most durable power in the world. When I say love those who oppose you, I'm not speaking of love in a sentimental or affectionate sense. It would be nonsense to urge people to love their attackers in an affectionate sense. What I refer to is, when I refer to love in this context, I mean understanding and goodwill. Gandhi resisted evil with as much vigor and power as the violent resister, but he resists, he resisted with love instead of hate. I've discovered that the highest good is love. This principle is at the center of the cosmos. It is the great unifying force of life. God is love. One who loves has discovered the meaning of ultimate reality. Let's sit for a minute, please. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you'll see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. Thank you for your kind presence here. We have uh, time for walking practice and we'll be back at nine o'clock.